Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of You Are Good. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall, and we'll be joined by Patrick McGinty. We're going to be talking about Ocean's Eleven. Uh, This is an extremely joyful chat. It's part of our unofficial heist series. We covered Widows uh, not long ago. We're covering Ocean's Eleven. We'll soon be covering Set It Off. Patrick, you should know, has a new novel out. It's called Test Drive. It'll be out May 24th. And if you are listening to this episode when it is new and you're in the Pittsburgh area, you should know that Patrick will be doing a book event with Sarah, with our beloved Sarah Marshall, at White Whale Books and Coffee. And that event is on June 3rd. Go check out White Whale Books and Coffee for more information. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. We have a new Patreon bonus episode up. It's about mourning. It's about grief. It's a lovely chat. We also talk about stuff that we like that uh, is not mourning and grief. <laughs> so it's a well-balanced conversation. I hope you will give that a listen. Um, we're not quite sure what our next bonus is going to be about. So if you have any suggestions about what you'd like to hear in a bonus episode, please let us know. You Are Good is also made possible with the support of Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. They're a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Also, if you're listening to this episode in real time, you should know that we have a very limited edition shirt inspired by this episode. You can find the link in the show notes. I think it's only going to be available for like six days and then it's done. It says gaudy monstrosity. You are good. And it is in the gaudy monstrosity style. (laughs) I love it. You can find it in the notes. I hope you'll check it out. And you know, you can represent us in the world with your gaudy monstrosity shirt. One last note, we have a playlist inspired by this conversation and inspired by the movie itself, which you can find linked in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, it's songs that we think about when we think about the conversation. It's songs that we think about when we think about the movie. I think you will enjoy it. You know, give it a listen if you are uh, so inspired to do so. So today we are talking about Ocean's Eleven. It's a big Sarah favorite. I saw it in the theater. Patrick uh, talks about seeing it in the theater as well. Sarah came to it late and it became a summer comfort movie for her. Like I said, it's a heist film. We're going to be doing some heist films in this warm, warm weather and maybe beyond. I don't know. You'll hear us offer a lot of our love to the heist genre in this episode. Ocean's Eleven, of course, is a 2001 American heist comedy film directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by Ted Griffin, the first installment of the Ocean's franchise. It's a remake of the 1960 Rat Pack film of the same name. Ocean's Eleven features an ensemble cast, including George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Don Cheadle, Andy Garcia, Bernie Mac, Julia Roberts, and many many more. This is a fun movie just to watch people be stars in. (laughs) There's not much more that I can say about Ocean's Eleven that you probably don't already know and that we won't cover in the conversation, so I won't. If you are a Patreon supporter, you'll recognize Patrick uh, if you don't already recognize Patrick because we did a Patreon episode with him about Room 237. All right, let's get on with it, shall we? Thanks for being here, everybody. You are good. 
Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. That's all I got. I'm just really happy. I don't have any jokes. Why are you so happy? I mean, every time we do a show, I get to talk about a movie with one of my favorite people, which is you. But this time we're talking about one of my favorite movies with two of my favorite people because Patrick McGinty is here and because we were talking about Ocean's Eleven with Patrick and you. <laughs> Patrick, hello. Tell us about you and what's going on. We've, we've talked before, but it was on the bonus section. So introduce yourself. What's going on? Oh, what's going on? Thrilled to be back. A longtime friend of Sarah Marshall, married by Sarah Marshall. She officiated my wedding. In a cemetery. This is true. This is true. I am in the room in my house that we call Sarah's room because it's where <laughs> she stays when she is with us. Yeah, longtime friend of Sarah. Uh, I should probably, I should, my, my little publisher would probably love if I plugged that I have a, a little novel coming out on May 24th called Test Drive about the driverless car sector in Pittsburgh and something of a heist novel, which is relevant, capital R relevant Fantastic. for today's conversation. And I'm delighted to be with you two who are so kind and wonderful and supportive of each other and also my work and my wife's work and so many other wonderful people's work. So thanks for having me on. It's worth mentioning at the outset that like everything I am at this point is like in very significant part because of the fact that I kind of lived on your guys's couch for a couple of years, not even most nights, but a lot of nights. And I was just like in the stew of your household and we were just always writing together and talking about what we were writing. And in a way, it's it's fitting that we're talking about a movie about how the best crime happens through the help of friends. I think, I don't know if that's true of crime, but it is true of art. It's very hard to articulate <laughs> to strangers exactly what you mean to me, Sarah. Literally today, this morning, someone was like, they saw that we're doing a, an event together at White Whale Bookstore here in Pittsburgh for the release of my book. And they're like, oh my gosh, you got Sarah Marshall. How do you know her? And I was like, funny fact. Because <laughs> you've become this incredible cultural juggernaut. And I'm so, I'm very, first of all, I'm very protective of you. And like, it's why I'm grateful you have someone like Alex who sort of helps you navigate this, this crazy person and, and figure you've become because I always am like a little old grandma sort of fretting over you and hoping that it's all going well and that it's not all getting to you or whatever. But it is like very hard to articulate when people say like, oh, how do you know Sarah? And I usually say like, oh, she's my wife and I's like mutual best friend. She married us. I don't know. We spent 700 hours together when we were developing as writers and people and artists in our 20s. And we talked about literally everything for like eight hours a day and you slept on our couch and then we just like spent all the time in the world together and talked over and over. And it's just like, I I don't know. I don't really know how to, usually I'm just like, here's a picture of us at my wedding. <laughs> like, I, yeah. Sarah, before we dive into these beautiful yes. tangents, tell us what Ocean's Eleven is and tell us uh, what people see in it. Ocean's Eleven is about the feeling of friendship, which is why I maintain this was all very relevant. But <laughs> yes. Okay. Ocean's Eleven is a movie that I didn't watch until December of 2020 because it came out, I think it was 99 or 2000. 2001. Summer of 2001. That's right. Because it's like the last moment of pre-9-11 culture when like guys could just be <laughs> pals in Vegas wearing cool jackets. So I guess I knew it was big and I was always just like, whatever, it probably sucks. It's probably lame. I am alternative. And then I watched it finally for some reason, and I immediately wanted to watch it 
immediately again and then the next day. And I think I probably watched it like three or four times in a week, which I think is a very standard experience with this movie because it just enters your body like a McDonald's cheeseburger. It's just like, and then it ends and you're like, I can go back to the beginning right now. And then if you can, you do. So (laughs) it's about Danny Ocean. It's a remake of a Rat Pack movie, crucially. And George Clooney is stepping into the Dean Martin role. And Danny Ocean is getting out of five years in the slammer. And we know from the beginning that he's going to get out and go ahead and do some more crimes. So he immediately heads to Atlantic City. He links up with his old friend, Bernie Mac, who's being a casino dealer under another name because under his past name, he can't can't get past the gaming commission. And then he goes to visit his friend, Rusty, played by Brad Pitt, who's always eating something, which is my favorite feature of this movie, and who is teaching teen stars how to play poker, which I think is... It's not essential to the plot, but like it just makes everyone happy when they watch it, I think. And they're real teen stars of the time. Yes. So it's beautiful. If you're of a particular age and you haven't seen this movie or have you seen it in a while, seeing this teen stars playing poker scene will really take you back. It's Topher Grace, Barry Watson from Seventh Heaven, Shane West from I Don't Even Know What He Was In, and Holly Marie Combs from Charmed. And I think, is it Joshua Jackson too? Is he there? Joshua Jackson, yeah, as well, yeah. Yeah. He can't deal the cards the right direction. He keeps dealing them the wrong way. My favorite line (laughs) in this whole movie might be, all reds. (laughs) (laughs) But he says, it says very quietly off camera, I can't wait to spend your money, which is a really (laughs) funny follow-up because he thinks he beat him. It's beautiful. Yeah. So Rusty is a career hustler who's teaching card playing to teen stars so they can play poker in movies, I guess. But also, I think because it's just like cool and they want to be cool. So he's really bummed. And Danny comes back to town and he's like, you know, what would cheer you up robbing a casino that's owned. Well, we'll get to that. Robbing a casino. (laughs) And so they go look at the vault blueprints, which the guy very nicely lets them see. The security guard comes by and Danny's like, we're just going to take these home and make copies. You're like, "Okay, I understand the rules. What I really enjoy is like there is a lot of exposition in this movie, but there are also a lot of like pre-existing established relationships that they don't explain and just let you assume that there is a foundation behind those relationships. And that's a lost art in a lot of ways, especially in like a in a Marvel decade and a half. It's a lost art to just be like, we just know this guy. We don't have to tell you why or how. Yeah, I think high-budget movies and TV in general are allergic to letting audiences figure stuff out. And I know who that's for. Like, I have watched TV with moms. The thing where everyone has someone in their life who, like, you're both watching something neither of you has ever seen before. A character shows up for the first time and she goes, who's that? Why did she do that? What's happening? Who's the guy? And you're like, it's filmmaking is an art. Just let it happen to you. Like, we're writing for for that person now. Yeah. So they are like, okay, we're going to rob this casino. We're going to rob the Bellagio, which Alex, I was texting you 
about how the Bellagio kind of irritates me because what is the theme of the Bellagio? Every casino has a theme (laughs) except the Bellagio. Maybe they do have a theme, but if they do, I can't figure it out. And I've been inside of it, so I should know. The theme is now Ocean's Eleven. I think that's the the theme of the hotel now. (laughs) I mean, good for them because they didn't have one before. But so they're going to rob the Bellagio. They have their first meeting with Elliot Gould, who's just a classic Vegas guy, used to run casinos, and he's going to be their backer, basically. And this is like a funny movie to try and describe because I'm like, that scene happens. It doesn't sound fun, but it's fun. And like, why is it fun? It's fun because Elliot Gould talking to Brad Pitt and George Clooney is fun. I love Elliot Gould more than most people. The fact that like Elliot Gould was menacing stud in the 70s and in this he's old Mm -hmm. finally and his like guts out and he refers to a casino as a gaudy monstrosity which is funny because he too (laughs) is kind of a gaudy (laughs) monstrosity. Again it's like how I love that Topher Grace was willing to show up and look like an idiot. I love that he brings his like very interesting. He's got like this like very fun like internal struggle going on of his pride being hurt, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Elliot Gould in this part, and is like a wealthy slob. And I love it. I love I love every time he's on scene. I love everything he says. It also represents the tension between like old and new Vegas, right? Because he's very much a 60s, yeah. 70s Vegas Rat Pack guy. And Harry Benedict represents the 90s, which we know because he's played by Andy Garcia, who is in The Godfather Part 3, famously a movie that came out in the 90s. <laughs> he plays the character. Yeah. I, I thought when I was watching him this time, he has like a pocket watch that has or some sort of silver chain going across his chain. It looked like a thin little like belly necklace sort of thing across his torso that I, I'm assuming goes Ooh. to a pocket watch. I could not stop looking at it this time around. <laughs> I was like, is he like, I don't know. There's, I don't know. He's got like collars and vests and then collars on top of that. He's got all this sort yeah. of infrastructure. He just has like, like Steve Bannon <laughs> decor infrastructure on his body in this. And for some reason he has some little, I'm not stylish enough to know what exactly the chain is. Maybe it's like part of his vest. Maybe it's to a pocket watch, but I thought it was for like belly dancing or something but <laughs> i like it it's a belly chain yes andy garcia is in the movie yes well and he's he's coming but just know he's there and he has the aura of someone who could kill anyone in this room with a pen which is very hard to convey when you're just walking around but he manages it so they got ruben on board he's like listen it's fucking impossible to rob a casino only three people have ever come close and none of them ever made it out of the casino itself. And they're like, well, we're going to rob Andy Garcia's casino. And he's like, all right. And also, this is where we learn that Andy Garcia, if he knows that you have robbed him, he will hunt you till the ends of the earth. So then we have the wonderful line from Ruben, you're going to need a crew. Who do you got in mind? And then we get to meet all of our crew. We go back to Frank Catton, played by Bernie Mac, who's putting in for a transfer to Las Vegas. We get the Mormon twins, played by James Kahn's son and Ben Affleck's brother. <laughs> that is a that is a perfect description of that duo. <laughs> <laughs> Just like two brothers who both have big little brother energy. I guess they're twins. That would make sense. And we introduce them. I didn't realize until watching it this time that this is establishing something that's going to be useful 
or maybe I knew before and forgot, but we introduced them by having Casey Affleck racing a little remote controlled car against the truck his brother is driving. And that's going to come back incredibly. And I feel like if this movie has a flaw, it's that for some people, I imagine it to be ruined by the inclusion of Casey Affleck at this point. And that's all I can think of. We have Livingston Dell, who's like a cross between Radar O'Reilly and MASH and John Cazal in The Conversation, <laughs> who's our, li- our little surveillance guy. He's our little fella. We have Basher Tar, played by Don Cheadle, who is doing a very good Cockney accent. No notes on the accent. <laughs> no notes, says Sarah. Okay. <laughs> First of all, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, I had no idea Don Cheadle was British. And then I looked it up. And of course, the Internet is like the notoriously terrible accent. Worst accents in movies. Bash your tar. And I was like, all right. (laughs) I like what Amanda Smith said, who we tried to have on the podcast and record now and then three times with. And it didn't work. Because of the ghost of Dear Johnny. Yeah. Because of the ghost, the poor ghost of Dear Johnny kept interfering. But Amanda Smith responded to your tweet and said, that his accent is perfect in this movie because it's hard to tell like if it's supposed to be his accent or if he's just doing that accent as the character. Yes. <laughs> and I really, I really like that take a lot. Like imagining that this is a person who's doing that. Like he just watched Snatch. <laughs> starring Brad Pitt. Starring Brad Pitt and he can't <laughs> help but do it. I like that. I, I That's a guy. That was a guy that existed in the late 90s and early 2000s. That's so true. And yeah, I guess like Adrian Brody in Summer of Sam. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Bash is probably just from Florida or something, but this is him now. <laughs> I have takes on the accent, but we can save them for, for later. We'll let you get through the summary. Okay. Looking forward to it. <laughs> and then we get the amazing Yen, who's going to be our grease man. And we, the audience, will find out later what that means. And then we recruit Saul, played by Carl Reiner. So we have a wonderful sequence where Brad Pitt gets to go to the Greyhound track. And Saul is like a legendary old con man who's, you know, they're going to bring him back for one last job. So naturally, if you've seen a movie before, you're like, well, Saul's fucking toast. He breaks late. Everybody knows this. (laughs) (laughs) My college roommate would say that every single time we got in the wrong line checking out for groceries. And I'd be like, we got in the wrong line. He'd he'd look at our cashier and say, he breaks late. Everybody knows this. (laughs) I'm glad to have that now. I feel like that'll help me get through some stressful situations. I still say it all the time. Traffic, store, ah, he breaks late. Everybody knows this. Yeah, it's such a great thing to have in your vocabulary. Carl Reiner in a bucket hat. And of course, everybody signs on. And then we got Linus played by Matt Damon because they were like, we need another extremely hot, dewy young guy in this movie. Hot, dewy young guy. Hot, dewy young guy. Hot, dewy young guy. That was a Blues Brothers reference. Remember that? Orange whip, orange whip, three orange whips. (laughs) So we've introduced our team and then we all meet up at Ruben's house. We have another great Ruben line. That's wonderful. Get in the goddamn house. (laughs) (laughs) And then basically we, we get the basics of the difficulty of the plan, which is that they have to somehow get into the cage where important things are kept. Is this is this like the the money for the because there's a cage and then the vault. So how does that break down? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're yeah. right. <laughs> yes. Right. We're not quite this far in the aesthetic, but this is very much like the part in The Wolf of Wall Street where he's like, 
Now, after we short sold the stocks, our friends were going to, you know what, you don't understand any of what I'm saying. But the point is, is any of this legal? Absolutely not. (laughs) Exactly. This is just vibe. Yes. Okay. So the point is they have to get, they have to send someone into the cage. They have to go down the elevator, which is rigged with lasers into the vault, past the guards. And that's where all of the money that the casino has to have on the floor to match every chip in circulation that night is going to be. And because it's a big fight night, we're like setting up that there's this boxing match coming up. It's going to be about $160 million. So we know some of what they have to do to pull it off, but a lot of this is kept secret from us until the actual heist. And so our three acts are basically putting the team together, act two, planning and preparing for the heist and then the heist itself. So basically we ha- we just get to watch our guys go into the casino and figure out how do we get out of here? How do we hack into the security camera system? There's a great sequence where they have to send Livingston, their surveillance guy, into the backstage to get surveillance stuff plugged in and they cover a security camera by having the Mormon twins argue about balloons and then release a bunch of balloons that obscure a camera. And then through this, we also get George Clooney starting to bother his ex-wife Tess, who surprise is dating Terry Benedict, whose casino this is. And she's played by Julia Roberts. So the only women in this movie are Julia Roberts, that dealer from Atlantic City, Chantal, the stripper, and Holly Marie Combs. Is she, her name is Charmaine or Chantal? Oh, is it Charmaine? I think it's Charmaine. I only remember because Bernie Mac spells it the, in the crossword, I think. That's right. <laughs> he spells like Charmaine. Yeah, Charmaine. So we watch the prep. Carl Reiner is going to play Lyman Zerga. This is kind of the beginning of the scheme where he is playing an international arms dealer who is going to get his very important item, which seems kind of ominous based on how important something concealed in a briefcase could be, into the cage, which will then basically start the sequence of events that will allow the other guys to infiltrate the casino. So on the night of the heist, Danny gets flagged and can't be on the casino floor. There's a few little things that could be just things that happen in casinos or could be references to the movie Casino, and this is one of them. And so he goes to bother Tess again. She basically is like, I'm very happy now in my lawful relationship with this lawful guy who runs a casino and does not seem shady to me because he's Andy Garcia and what seems less shady than Andy Garcia So he gets himself arrested and thrown into the beat the guys up area of the casino with a guy bruiser who turns out to be very nice and helps boost him out of the room so that he can then infiltrate the backstage area. I'm just going to call it the backstage of the casino because that's how I think of it. At the same time that Matt Damon has gotten back there because he is playing a Nevada Gaming Commission guy who is fake arresting Bernie Mac. And then they rob the casino. The end. <laughs> they rob the casino. Yeah. You know what's what's funny is you you both have already keyed in on something that I thought about rewatching it this time. Like Sarah, you said you rewatched it like immediately. And mm-hmm. I saw more movies this year than any year in my life in the theater. And this is a bit confessional, but it's because I was 15, could not drive, had a girlfriend, and we would go to movies and make out in the back row of the movie theater. Mm-hmm. 
I was looking at movies from this year that I don't remember anything about because I was just a horny 15-year-old. Antitrust. I think Tim Robbins plays evil Jeff Bezos, which is to say Jeff Bezos. Head Over Heels, no idea. Pearl Harbor, no (laughs) idea. Summer Catch. All of these are like Freddie Prince Jr. The big difference is that me and my girlfriend went to Ocean's Eleven did not make out, did not talk, watched all of it, and then went and did the same thing again the next day. This movie is so fascinating for that, like, it appealed to a 15-year-old girl by showing her all these wow. very, very hot people. And it appealed to a 15-year-old boy by having, like, jazzy heists and this sort of, you know, music that sounds like a rattlesnake drinking whiskey out of an oboe and just kind of <laughs> like this vibe. And, and like, it really is incredible that I was just looking at all the movies from this year and being like, wow, I saw like a movie a week this whole year solely because I had nowhere else to go. And this movie I went right back to and watched instantaneously and did not make out with my girlfriend. If this sounds sad to you that I had to go to a movie theater, Sarah has been to my parents' house. She has been there for multiple Thanksgivings. My parents' house is like... Groundhog Day crossed with the moment in Home Alone when the alarm goes off and they'd overslept and it, that just plays over and over every single... Like, have you ever had a private moment in my parents' house ever, Sarah? Ever? It is like... <laughs> Is it a place where a 15-year-old Patrick could make out with a girl, Sarah? No. No, I could th- no. Well, Have you ever had a solitary thought in that house to yourself, Sarah? No. I mean, for comparison, like I grew up with some spectacularly rich children whose parents had built new homes or bought homes that had been built in the 80s or the 90s. And that style I think was perfect for a kid who wanted to get up to mischief because They would have these giant basement TV rooms that were just like, here's the giant basement where the children can do mischief. Have fun down there. We can't hear you. We're on the third floor of our Tuscan villa in Oregon. And every bathroom has pills. Yes. So go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Suffice to say, I went to a lot of movies because I couldn't make out my own house. And that this one, literally this one above all the others, saw it twice, did not make out during it all. Well, I almost said made out with the movie. I think I did make out with this movie. That's what this movie does to you. Or at least like gently like leans in and kisses you on the cheek and then drops a cell phone in your pocket. (laughs) Sarah, when you visited this movie in 2020 for the first time, like why did you find it to be a movie that you would not make out at the theater about? I have a few thoughts about movies. A, that like people just want to watch people make and eat beautiful food a lot. So just do that in your movie. It's not that hard. And B, like people just want to watch beautiful men be friends with each other and have like little moments of conflict to make things seem consequential, but to essentially not be in conflict and like be all holding hands on ecstasy or something. A lot of people said of or a hand enough people said mm-hmm. that I noticed it in response to our our dick episode that what really stood out to them in the commentary was talking about that the girls seemed mm. safe. Mm-hmm. They were in a menacing situation, but the menace was never aimed at them. They're followed by a van and have to dive into garbage at one point. But yeah, right. generally. You know that it's not going to end. Yeah, a- you know they're not going to get shot by the Secret Service. Totally. I think that that's kind of a quality to the men being friends appeal because like a lot of times 
if you got more than like three men together, the situation feels like it's more likely to be dark and bad than not. I mean, if it's, if it's a movie, for sure. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, that, yeah. exactly. That's what I mean. It's nice to see yeah. this because, again, it's like the worst thing that happens is a, a slightly smarmy guy doesn't get his way. And as I was saying before, like, you're like, oh, Carl Reiner's last job, he's toast. And like, he has to pretend to have a heart attack in order to get everybody to create a diversion for the scheme to work. And the first time you're watching it, you're like, oh, no. And then, of course, it's part of the story and he's fine and everyone's fine. And there are no casualties in this movie. There are a couple of moments where you think, oh, shit, there's casualties. No, like it's just all the sharp edges are covered. You can draw a straight line between this and The Dark Knight, right? Because we have this and then we have 9-11 right after. And then we have the Iraq War, which was totally connected, obviously. Just don't ask how civilians. Just don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. We felt as a nation that it made sense to have a fun summer action movie with the Joker stabbing somebody's eyeball out, I believe, and like hissing, you complete me at Batman and Batman not even taking it as an <laughs> overture. And you're just like, I'm Miss Danny and Rusty. <laughs> yeah, that's like a beautiful description of the start of the aughts and then how they how they leave. How it started, how it's going. <laughs> this is for sure a getting the game together movie, except there's so many movies that don't do it as well as this one. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm not Joe Film School by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> the only book I've ever read about movies is called The Conversations by Ed Murch, who's a film editor for like The Godfather mm -hmm. and all these different Movies And he talks about, like, in every scene, the petitioner and the grantor, hmm. that, like, somebody is petitioning for something and somebody is granting permission. And I think a lot of, like, getting the gang together movies kind of, like, get everybody together and then they go fight some, like, massive, huge, this thing might destroy the earth. And they all sort of talk as one sort of chorus. Like, I don't, like, I feel like there's a lot of sort of superhero movies like this or whatever where you sort of assemble yeah, the gang's all assembled, but there's all these little weird little mm. Danny and Rusty have to go to Ruben and like get his permission. Then quickly, he's like, well, I want you to tell me the scheme now. And then Danny's got to go sell everybody. But then they go into the room and now he stands up and he's in front of the TV screen and he's the one in charge. And then he's got to go to Tess and Tess is now the grantor of permission. There's all these just little and the stakes are like fairly small, relatively speaking, but you, 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 we make fun of the accent. But like, I even just like some of the differences, some of just the, the tonal differences in this, the facial differences, like Bernie Mac has got these big eyes, whereas like <laughs> Cheadle gives great wince in this. He's always wincing and sort of very tight. Mm -hmm. Basher's very loud. Even Yen is loud. Andy Garcia whispers. <laughs> I feel like there's just lots of just great juxtapositions and contrasts and all of this that make it so much more fun than a lot of the getting the gang together movies that then like once the gangs assembled they're just this gelatinous sort of blob of teamwork and unity with some sort of like minor kind of uh differences but i don't know watching it this time i was like oh this is kind of artful in the ways in which it's it's sort of having all these shifting power dynamics and little scenes that just make it fun to watch and in addition to just like some of the again like i just this is a movie a lot about reactions mm -hmm. too where like something goes wrong and like bernie max like eyes pop or like don Cheadle winces real tight or do they do all these different things that i just kind of find enjoyable mm-hmm I relate to this much more now than when I originally watched the movie at 17 or 18 is that like George Clooney's motivating mm -hmm. factor is pride to get his wife back right down to the when we see the I was telling Sarah like the schematics of the vault is like just a 
dick. He's <laughs> penetrating Andy Garcia's dick. It is. It is. It is. And then Rubens is pride as well because his whole thing is not in vogue anymore. And also their relationship hmm. is director and producer, which I imagine is struck Soderbergh a lot. And they're like assembling the team to like make this big thing that they can't possibly make. And obviously Soderbergh was a huge breakout in independent film. Hmm. There's a lot that's going on there, but I love that their motivations are petty. Like, I like that these are really suave. You want to kind of be these guys. You want to hang out with these guys, but they're petty boys. Yeah. And also that they're stealing because they like stealing. <laughs> yes. And, you know, part of the way the heist works is that they have to anticipate that Andy Garcia is going to claim to be brokering a deal with them and then immediately going behind their back and calling the SWATs the SWAT team. And they know that's going to happen. And so they can use that. Yeah. Expl explain that part. Well, that's such a good part. <laughs> <laughs> so basically they using the surveillance footage like Andy Garcia is looking at the surveillance cameras of the casino and Rusty calls him via the phone that Danny has slipped into Tess's coat pocket and is like listen here's the situation we are robbing you we are taking 80 million dollars if you look to your surveillance cameras you can see us doing that you see those guards knocked out. See our guys in the vault. Looks pretty bad, right? Well, we are, <laughs> I think this is brilliant too, uh, at least in theory. We are ransoming our 80 million with your 80 million. So basically, if you let us take our 80 million, you can keep the other 80 million. And so your choice is you can lose $80 million tonight secretly, or you can lose $160 million publicly. So Andy Garcia is like, all right, you have a deal, Mr. Man on my casino floor. And then is like, call the SWAT team, call the cops. We're going to take these fuckers down. And so he thinks he has the upper hand. And what turns out to be the case the guys have constructed a replica of the Bellagio vault and filmed a fake staged robbery inside of it so they can then show that to Andy Garcia, make him think that they are stealing his money, and then show up as the SWAT team that he thinks that he has called and then actually steal all his money and replace what he thinks is the original money that the <laughs> theoretical robbers have stolen with, quote, flyers for hookers. And someone on Twitter, when I asked if this movie had flaws, was like, where did the flyers for hookers come from? And it's like, you know what? Matt Damon had them in his other pocket. <laughs> it is funny. I mean, Alex, you bring up the producer-director relationship, which, which is an amazing comment. And yeah, I mean, like earlier you were like, what is this movie about? What is like the subtext? Is this just enjoyable? Yeah. It does kind of seem like it is about in some way them making that replica and staging it. I mean, a heist, this version of a heist is not a rock'em, sock'em, knock'em out heist. This is all theatricality. This is all your ability to act and deceive. What is this movie about? It's almost like from Soderbergh's perspective, it's like if you are as ruthless and rigorous in creating detail yeah. and specificity and like staging it correctly, you can have more style than your enemies and take their money at the same time, which is like any any sort of movie studio that might not have signed him. I mean, not that it's like that direct, but it, when I think about the end and what they actually pull off and what is 
the point. It's like if you if you plan as carefully as Steven Soderbergh does, <laughs> and if you're as relentless to detail and sound and everything, and you like cre- create the perfect sort of mirage, then you'll just be able to have it all. The mo- movies can sort of make money and look better than the lame people who wear belly chain suits who are standing in the way of them. They're standing in the way of them getting mm-hmm. made. That's what it's about. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about like what is this movie about, and I was like, I think it's about if you make a really, really, really good movie, you can. And trick people and have their money, have their money, which is what these characters do. This could be reading too hard into the subtext, but like I really do feel like this is like Soderbergh's manifesto. Mm. This is the most Soderberghian Soderbergh movie I can think about with regard to like the technicality that went into making it and the flash, like the styles. And Patrick, I'm curious as someone who has written a book where a heist plays into it. I, I'm curious about like what you think appeals to people about heists in particular, you know, I was thinking about this with regard to, again, like if you look at the motive, Sarah's right, like part of the motivations is these guys just like doing this stuff and it gives them meaning, but there's also this really resonant motivation of like, I lost my wife and I lost everything and I'm trying to get those things back and that's important. I lost my hand. So we have we have those elements that and these people are outlaws and I feel like outlaws are like much more relatable than casino owners. So like there's all these pieces that feel like everyday person against big capitalism in ways that will easily resonate with people. But like what why is heist a genre that people return to? It's a good question. And I think there's words that come to mind. There's anticipation, there's tenseness, there's different things. I think when I think of heist, when I thought of writing my own novel, which is not as explicit a heist as this, although people, workers do try to steal a driverless car (laughs) in my novel. But I think I thought a lot of it, and I think of this movie a lot as far as a relay race. Mm. And I'm not a big track and field person, but when you watch a race on NBC or something, and it's a relay and there's different people at different spots. A good production team will sort of show, here's this Canadian here. Look at them stretching. And you're like, oh boy, like there's anticipation. You're seeing the whole thing in advance. They show you, they sort of plan for it. Similar to, I, I've honestly thought a lot of heists as it relates to horror too, because a lot of horror thrillers sort of shows you sort of mm. the, I call it the tour of the facility, much like early in Jurassic Park, where they mm. sort of, they tour you around Jurassic Park and nothing's going on yet. But so later when your heart is pulsing, you're focused on your pulse and not the logistics of where we are. So I do think like a good heist movie and Soderbergh does it so well here with George Clooney, Danny Ocean, telling them all exactly how it's going to go and showing it on the screen. And we're like, we know that handoff is going to happen. That's going to happen, but I'm not going to turn off the channel because I want to like see if it happens. There's a difference between planning and doing. I think heists make that really, really clear planning and doing there's mm-hmm. a big difference and both are crucial and they're they're interrelated but i mean this is like what my wife and i talk about on the couch every single night what do we want to do with our lives and then what are we going to do the, the, there's something that that heists make it really 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 tactile and cram it into like an hour and a half of planning becomes doing really really fast a lot of movies don't do that or plans go awry or plans never come to fruition or sort of hope lost, love lost things. But I think there's something, and I thought about this a lot when I was writing my own novel, where 
I felt like there were things that happened in my own life that took like 10 years of sort of like planning and thinking about and revising and doing that like a heist just it all has to happen very, very fast. There's got to be an intense amount of planning and then it has to have some doing and then it turns into consequences very fast that I mean, there's all sorts of other ways we can read into it. But what are we stealing? Is, Is it some sort of anti-capitalist narrative it's it's some sort of robin hood narrative there's there's any other number of of subgenres and fun things that get wrapped up in it but i think for me when when i'm like writing and i'm watching something like this it's like there's such an obscene amount of planning going on and then all of a sudden it's just that holy shit now we're doing it mm-hmm. they start a clock right that's what the hi-hat or the tambourine in this movie kind of is it's just kind of like a clock it's just sort of a little bit of ticking not in like a nerve rattling way i think that's just one of the coolest things about the music in this there's some sort of like bad movies that just kind of have that tick 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 sort of heist <laughs> thing that like wants to kind of get your pulse going but we've seen it so many times it's annoying this uses hi-hat and tambourine and like it's the same sort of thing but it's just so much cooler i mean yeah uh, i'm pivoting off the heist the heist thing but i don't know that's does that make sense like the the planning and doing and just how it's brought into such sharp juxtaposition totally yeah so this oceans 11 comes out a year after traffic comes out Aaron Brockovich is 2000, Traffic is 2000, Ocean's Eleven's 2001. There are these movies, there's The Wire, which is like entertainment about like mm. how stuff works, mm. which like reminds also right. of Goodfellas, which we've talked about obviously in the show, but also a number of times it's just about how like Martin Scorsese is really good at being like, here's how systems work mm-hmm. and here's how the people fit into the systems and here's how it all plays together. I feel like this was very much the end of that time Hmm. in a little bit is like goodfellas felt like a setup for that he continued with casino casino bridges the way to this with soderbergh we have all of this entertainment that's kind of like Hmm. that you know maybe culminates in like breaking bad in one way or another where it's like these are how all these systems of power work yeah and i mean what i was gonna say connects directly to goodfellas as well because i was thinking while watching this like i bet in like the netherlands or something I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're exactly like this. I have no idea. But I bet that in other countries, people are less tough on crime and also less obsessed with criminals (laughs) and with fantasizing about being criminals. Because I think in America, like we have this or in the U.S. specifically, we have this fascinating thing where like we're so obsessed with how do we punish criminals harder? How do we how do we dehumanize them more? How do we use the fact of having committed a crime, which everyone has done, how do we use that as a way to create a class of underhumans? And then also, like, all we do in our free time is fantasize about being criminals. What is that? <laughs> I'm reading The Invention of Billy the Kid right now, which is by Stephen Tatum, and it came up like a couple decades ago now, but it's about exactly this phenomenon in American history, which is like immediately, like in the reporting of the criminal, there's already like an erotic aspirational element to it, like early on in sort of the American press that immediately within the criminal's lifetime supersedes like what the actual actuality of their life is and then just becomes sort of a totem Mm -hmm. for in which like you can imagine yourself. And I think like largely, particularly with regard to like the outlaw, the criminal is the outlaw. And I think it largely has to do with the fact that this country in particular, I can't speak to other ones, seems to really not 
do well by people who follow the rules. <laughs> mm. You mean those stiffs who ride the subway to work every day? Really doesn't treat the rule followers very well. <laughs> and I think that everyone knows that on some level is that it's like the criminal is really convenient because it can either be like that fucking scumbag who's worse than I am yeah. or a ticket to not being the scumbag that I am. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, like the Wolf of Wall Street, when we see like Kyle Chandler on the subway at the end, I feel like we're being asked like, well, who's had a better ride? Oh, yeah. The guy with the high highs and the low lows who ended up as a Christ metaphor in his own crashed Ferrari or this fucker. <laughs> we both know. <laughs> I mean, this was this was the take. I what I was saying earlier. I was like, I don't really know what is this about. Whatever. I was I was wondering if you were going to go down the criminal, tie it to serial killer somehow, tie it to something, tie it to. I was like, it's not like my lane to work. That is that is much more the lane. I mean, you were in Mind Hunter. You do know a lot about this. You're goddamn right. I was in Mind Hunter. Were you Ed Kemper? <laughs> no, no. I was. Uh, I was. <laughs> FBI trainee number nine, I believe. Hell yeah. Uh, yes, yes. I did think about, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I did think Soderbergh's not quite as like legendary for the takes. I mean, he's he's very exacting from what I understand, but not the like sort mm -hmm. of incredibly draconian style as Fincher's known for. I was thinking about that with a lot of like the casino shots, which are just sort of, particularly when like there's absolute chaos after the power, the pinch takes things out and like there's just mass <laughs> chaos. I was like, wow, I wonder if this, like how choreographed all this chaos was right. and like if he was obsessive about getting like the cocktail waitress clotheslined at the exact time or like if, I was thinking about that. I'm always thinking about things from the from the extras point of view as is my, my purview as a long time and by long time, I mean like three time extra. Unsurprisingly, uh, my mom been an extra in many, many, many movies and has wheedled her way into many a scene. I think I even talked about this last time. Yeah, I was just going to say my favorite story about your mom perpetrating a scam. It's hardly a scam is when she was in Diabolique. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I was too. Young, young Patrick McGinty in, D in Diabolique as well. The Sharon Stone classic. Yeah. Holy moly. It is funny thinking about making this movie. I mean, it's funny to compare this to Casino in a lot of ways. And one is that Casino like seems maybe slightly more intricate or like the same level of intricacy as this, but like it's, it's very operatic. So it makes sense to think of the work going into it. Whereas this, the feeling is supposed to be so easy and breezy. I feel like it is really, you're able to forget how difficult this would have been to make, which I think is the goal. Like, yeah, this is a very detailed movie. It's incredibly, it's showing you details early that, that are relevant later. It's, it's a scheme. It's got all these mechanics, but there is, there's so much what I call muck. Hmm. Nobody wants to go step by step. You have to undo this. You have to do this. We don't actually want a manual. Hmm. We want an experience. And what I think Soderbergh's really good at in this is just throwing in so much sort of plot muck that is very specific detail, but it's just rendered incomprehensible when they're like, oh, you need a Boski and a, a Jim Brown and Ella Fitzgerald. The fact that and Basher's accent is hyper specific and using all these terminology, but it's incomprehensible. So you're just like, well, he knows what he's doing. Yen, the fact that Yen isn't translated and isn't like... And they're just like, Rusty speaks Chinese. It's fine. This is one character in every 90s movie. Yeah, there's so many different little ways in which Soderbergh throws in tons of specific that's actually just mud that makes it feel like it's super specific and these people know what they're doing but right. 
you don't need to actually know it and we're not going to explain it. Getting back to your, it's that thing you talked about earlier, Alex, where it's just like, yeah, they're not going to explain who, how they know Oscar, or the security guard. There's a whole big world out there full of terminology and we're just kind of diving in that. I think that's like one of the smarter things about this. So many things happen in this movie that do not matter. Yeah. They matter mm -hmm. if you were experiencing them as the viewer. Like they absolutely matter about your relationship with the movie. At the end of the day, it's like they assemble a team. They pull one over on a, a smarmy casino owner. It's so much fun along the way. And all of the ways that they get there. Again, like if you explain them, it's like what, whatever. But like it, when you experience them, you're like you're very much like in the universe, mm. and the universe winks at you, but it doesn't really pander to you, mm. which I mm. really, mm. really, really enjoy. A Scorsese movie, like all of those points, really do matter. But this is just there's a party on the way to the heist. <laughs> The heist is a party, and then there's a party afterward. That's the whole vibe of this fucking movie. And I don't mean to keep bringing it back to the motivations are got to get the wife back, got to get this guy back for outshining me in this like new era. There's something about that where, again, like on the Scorsese end, the motivations of the criminals are... The pathos is almost like mm. too much for it to resonate. Like you can understand its origin, but you're like, I don't like I just wouldn't put a screwdriver. It was a vice, Alex. <laughs> exactly. I just couldn't put a screwdriver in someone's head no matter how fucked up my childhood was. It's often difficult to find resonance and like the motivations mm. of especially like criminals that are operating at this high of a payoff. But again, just guy lost it all probably because of his own hubris. A little Brit needs to get his wife back. As much as like the the experience and the appearance of these people probably doesn't resonate with the average person, the motivations do. It actually feels pretty high school, right? Like this could be oh, yeah. like the fantasy of some kid named Danny Ocean yes. whose like girlfriend went off with some shitty quarterback and now he and his nerdy friends are going to arrange like they're going to take control <laughs> of the homecoming game halftime show and spell out Tess yes, in yes. pom-poms or something. Because yes. right, because like Casino, you couldn't boil down to like, well, if they were all in high school and murdering each other, no. This could boil down to like just 18 movie in terms of motivations and payoff and stuff. Well, you know why why it works for like a high school group or why the stick like there's no kids in this movie. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Listen, I'm a dad, love kids. My neighborhood block is wonderful, full of kids who I love. But like, this movie doesn't need kids. Fuck off, kids. Like, <laughs> we, this is great. Like, this is... Alex, you're talking about the sort of the pathos that a lot of the... A lot of the sort of one last job or sort of the whole like Liam Neeson sort of genre of, of extraction mm. stuff, this sort of kid centric stuff that just as you were talking and like maybe even the reason I loved it when I was like 15 is because like I'm not thinking about kids. I'm thinking about having fun. Like certainly like the marvelification of things like makes it that the world is ending in every single movie or a city's about to be destroyed or the stakes are always like have to be so gargantuan um that yeah there is there is something nice I, I mean everything you said was great alex and like the only thing i would tack on to it would be dot 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 and no kids <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and which means that the adults can be the kids yeah and, and then right it's god that's so true i think it's kind of annoying that there's this idea that like well we got to throw kids in because the protagonist got to have kids because then if they have kids then they'll have a reason to save the skyscraper from collapsing or whatever stupid thing we're doing. 
And I, I'm a big fan of like not deploying kids unless you know why you're doing it. And that connects kind of to the thing of there's no women in this movie except for Julia Roberts, Charmaine, the dealer, the cocktail waitress who gets clotheslined and some fifth person I'm not thinking of. It's to me like a classic problem that like movies about women aren't getting made and that like when women show up in movies, they're typically disappointed wives or <laughs> inspiring girlfriends. And that's something that really boils my blood. And this movie doesn't make me mad the same way that, or in a similar way to how the thing doesn't make me mad. Because rather than claiming to be about in a world in which women exist and then failing to depict that, like this is just about men and their friendship with each other. And that's all it's claiming to be. And I love that. I feel like I, I would love it if movies set out more often to be explicitly about like men's relationships with each other, because I think they're often claiming to be about something else. And then at the end of the day, they're just about men and their relationships with each other. That's very well said. So Sarah, what were you tickled by? Oh my God. I mean, I, I love that Rusty's always eating. That might be one of the main things I enjoy. We're really learning a lot about who I aspire to be. I want to be a bimbo and I want to be like Rusty. I want to be a con artist bimbo wearing a shiny, shiny tie. And I love that they use glow sticks at the bottom of the elevator shaft. Like that's such a nice moment of like, you know what? Why use something fancy? These work fine. And they're probably handing them out on the strip or something like that. Patrick, what about you? Sarah talked a lot about how this movie's about male friendships. And it really struck me rewatching it last night. How many lines I have said for years <laughs> with many of my male friends <laughs> to that day. Every time I see my brother like on a holiday... And we'll like shake hands. One of us will go denim like a jean. <laughs> it's like Bernie Mac says when he shakes the guy's hand whose name is Denim, who is also, as I was texting Sarah, that that actor is the whose hand gets crushed by Bernie Mac is the same actor whose uh, hand suffers a, 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 an ill fate in Casino. That's insane. Even when Tess comes to, it's so stupid. When Tess comes to sees. Brad Pitt and she's like, "Where's Danny?" And Brad Pitt's like, "He's fine. He's in good form." We we I say I say he's in good form to another former roommate of my time all the another former roommate of mine all the time when when we'll ask about somebody else a mutual friend I'll say, "Yeah, he's in good form." Like we like I don't like there's just a lot of little throwaway lines in this that that tickled me to rewatch and I think, man, these guys modeled a kind of friendship that I, I don't know that one should necessarily aspire to it, but God knows I did. This is largely because it was also on the soundtrack, which I listen to all the time. But without prompt, I often say, are you a man? Are you alive? Evil Knievel? Because they're playing three <laughs> questions. <laughs> I don't think I fully appreciated until this watch is when Scott Cotton is trying to sell. <laughs> is trying to sell um, Carl Reiner on checking out Utah <laughs> on promo. And Carl Reiner's like, I'll have to look into it. <laughs> <laughs> he's like do you get out to provo much and carl reiner's like not as much as i'd like <laughs> yeah and con's, con's like you could do well there you could do very well there yeah <laughs> it's so great it's so great yeah just watch and 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 knowing now more than I did when I first watched this is like, you know, I mean, Steven Soderbergh is obviously one of the great directors of our time. I love when, and Martin Scorsese does this so, so much in all of his movies, but I love when these guys bring in people who they clearly loved from their, their childhoods. And so like, I really mm. feel like that's, you yeah. know, that's what bringing Carl Reiner in is about. That's what bringing, um, 
Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould, sorry, geez, it just blanked. Yeah, that's what bringing Elliot Gould is about. Like the, these nods to people that they appreciate from, I imagine when they were growing up and watching like Altman movies or Mel Brooks stuff or the show of shows. Like, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine that Steven Soderbergh was watching the show of shows, but I love that sort of, those sorts of nods. I remember my mother, when I watched Casino with her, like she immediately got it on a level that was inaccessible to me because like Alan King shows up and she's like, Mm. oh, it's Alan King. He was always on, I don't know, like the Tonight Show or Jack Benny or whatever. Just that like (laughs) she growing up in the 60s has a difference. Like I know who Don Rickles is, but like, do I really know like she does? Like not really. So the fact that the roles that are being filled by these people was from this kind of who's who of 60s television. Like, I never would have gotten that. I love that. So we know that no one is a father in this movie, or we assume as much. Not that we, well, we know that Linus has a father. So I guess everyone has a father. (laughs) We've heard tell of Linus's father. Who in this movie do you consider to be the daddy, Patrick? I guess conventional wisdom would say Daniel Ocean, but God, I love Ruben. He is a daddy. I mean, he. There's something about him having all the money too, like the you know that that's something very sort of like, ooh, fund me, daddy. (laughs) 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 I just kind of like, I just kind of uh, love him. Yes, I think that's how I I would prefer to uh, to sort of conceptualize this film familiarly (laughs) in my head. Sarah. Yeah, well, speaking of, I mean, first of all, when I was like 12 and watching reruns of Friends where Elliot Gould was playing Ross and Monica's dad, I was like, tell me more about this Elliot Gould person. He is very attractive. (laughs) (laughs) So like he just he's got a quality, man. Something I realized recently which I think makes Las Vegas very special. Las Vegas is a very maligned city and if you go there and spend time there, then like you will see some different stuff than you would see in other places. But also it's really just like a breathtakingly normal American city full of normal American problems and like people trying to have their little yard and their cookouts. And it's also the only major American city I can think of that was essentially founded and forefathered by Jews. Mm. And I think that we should celebrate that more. And that's also who Ruben is. He's like a founding father character. He's our John Adams. Oh, I love that. That's so awesome. That's so great. I absolutely love that. (laughs) And so to not love Las Vegas or to at least be receptive to maybe loving it is perhaps a hate crime. (laughs) And my daddy is, you know, I, this time I just got to say Andy Garcia, cause like he knows what his job is. It's to be like the shitty asshole. And like, he knows exactly how to do it. And I will always think of Andy Garcia as the guy from Dead Again, because that was a movie I grew up watching with my mom. And so it's funny to think of him as like, of other people's baseline for him being like, the guy from The Godfather Part Three. But like, this might be his finest hour. Like, Patrick, what you said about him, like being at a whisper to me kind of expresses it. You know, he's able to do, anyone who's able to convey that much menace while using an inside voice, I I respect. Bernie, so Bernie Mac is my daddy in this situation. Love Bernie Mac. Watching Bernie Mac respond to things <laughs> is burned into my brain all the time. I, I think of his face in Bad Santa all the time, and I think of him in this all the time. His face is so dynamic in all the ways that it is, but like his timing is exquisite. And every time he's on screen, 
here it's an absolute joy and he commands every scene that he's in like he is you know he's sharing he's sharing space with andy garcia and matt damon two giants and is commanding that entire scene and every time he's around you just want him (laughs) he is fantastic and phenomenal and it's just it's every time we talk about it we've talked about him at least once and talking about friday on the show before but like he Mm -hmm. it's just such a fucking shame that he's gone he was so he was so tremendous yeah also if we are thinking about this movie as a symphony which i like and everyone is an instrument then like he is the second instrument to come in and that wasn't by chance either yeah that's a great point yeah he's like who we meet before everybody yeah Patrick, remind us uh, about your book and how to find it in all the things that you're, the people who would want you to talk about those things would be satisfied with. Tell us about that. My debut novel comes up May 24th. You can find it on propellerbooks.com. It's called Test Drive. If you're in Pittsburgh, the lovely Sarah Marshall, my wife, Candace Opper, and I will be doing a launch party uh, June 3rd on White Whale at White Whale Bookstore. You can pre-order through them as well. Reach out about it. Love to have some readers from the, the You Are Good crew uh, who seem like a lovely group of people, which makes sense because of the two lovely co-hosts. Come to Pittsburgh. Come to the reading. It'll be fun. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Patrick McGinty for joining us. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode and making it sound so sweet. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats to the show. And thank you to Chris Burns for editing this episode. We appreciate you, Chris. Thank you to you for supporting us by listening. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash youaregood for supporting us and making the show possible. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at youaregoodpod. Don't forget, there's a limited edition shirt if you're listening to the show right now when it comes out, linked in the show notes. I think that's it for now. Next week's episode is Set It Off with Akilah Green. We had so much fun talking about that, and I am excited to share it with you. We are in summer movie season, everybody. Again, we appreciate you. Thanks for helping us make this happen. You are good.